Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm Georgie Corridge-Cole, Sherlock's founder and CEO, and welcome to today's In Conversation With podcast. I am just delighted to be joined by Roseman Madhavji, one of Dubai's most loved tastemakers, entrepreneurs, influencers, presenters, ambassadors to several amazing causes. You're, you're really like the fairy godmother of the luxury industry in the Middle East, aren't you? Well, first of all, welcome to Dubai. Thank you. And thank you so much for having me. I feel like when you say that introduction, it just is a reflection about how old I am or how much experience I'm bringing, because I think, you know, I've been very lucky to work in different sectors. And and I think that comes down to experience. We're very lucky to be sitting here talking to you today. Um, I'd love to start with you talking us through your incredible career. You've really done some amazing things you're involved in so many amazing causes you are really the godmother of luxury um but can you tell us a bit about your early life and upbringing and what that was like so and your my, heritage and my heritage yeah my family is from east africa we're indian origin they had to leave east africa due to um you know, back then we had Idi Amin as a dictator and he told all the South Asians to leave. At that point, my dad was finishing um, his master's and just started working in the UK. My mom and my sister, my sister was three at the time. And, um, you know, they lived in joint family households. And so, you know, my dad was trying to build this great life for my family. And so all of this happened in the early 70s. And so from the UK, they all ended up from like East Africa, they all ended up going to Canada. My dad left the UK and ended up joining them in Canada as well. And, you know, it was actually the start of really having examples of people that work so hard and actually having entrepreneurs as, um, role models. as role models. And I, and honestly, I never really understood until I, I turned 40 and I actually, um, I was given this incredible opportunity to speak at, um, the house of Lords at parliament in London. And they asked me to write a five minute speech on my history and, how, you know, and, and my background. And, and it was actually this great point of reflection because I was trying to understand how did I become the way I am or how is my thinking so particular? And I realized that it was because I saw my mom and dad literally come with two suitcases and a three-year-old child, which is my sister and starting from scratch and education and all of that stuff was like, I mean, to really start and learn English again and come from a warm climate to freezing cold and in Canada, like I look back going, I can't believe 
they went through this and started their business. And, you know, my brother and I were born, you know, years later, because my parents didn't want to bring up a family until they could afford to, to give us like a proper home and education and all of that. And so my sister and I actually have 11 year age difference between us, but it was an example of watching them build a business and not, I didn't come from a nine to five environment. And so as much as my school friends had that, where their parents would come home at five or six and they would have dinner. Like my, I was lucky if my parents came home, you know, my mom would come home literally for a few hours after school to feed us and do homework or whatever it was. But my dad, I would be lucky if I saw him at 10, 11 at night. What did they do? So my first, my parents' first business was a corner store. Um, and then in the, Canada, in Canada, in a small town called London, Ontario. And it was funny because that, what do you sell in a corner store? Corner store was like equivalent to like a seven 11, I guess, or like, it was like magazines and, you know, like, oh, just dream like, when you're yeah, a child. Yeah, like candy bars and all of that. And, and, but you know, for me, it's funny because I look back and because my dad had, you know, I guess great taste at that point, he loved art. He loved fashion. So we actually had the best magazines. It was interior magazines. It was fashion, town and country, W, Vogue, Harper's Bazaar. Like that's the magazines I was exposed to. So I don't know if that's a good thing being a kid, but I was more attracted to that fashion photography. Having an older sister, she would grab these, you know, mag like Vogue, W. And when W, I don't know if you ever remember the old issues, but they look like a newspaper. They were folded. I mean, how iconic was that? Right. And so that's what I was exposed to. But as my dad's business excelled, he from having the corner store, he bought the building. And from having the building, he bought the corner. And then from having the corner, he started buying houses on the street until, you know, he ended up becoming, uh, getting into property. But his first business was this corner store. And what Um, did your mother do? My mom uh, was a teacher in East Africa. She came to Canada and she helped him build the business. And so she went from helping him with like the property management. And then, you know, and then later she followed her passion of doing like reflexology and teaching and everything else. But she was really pivotal in building the business. Amazing. Amazing. So you had a happy childhood in Canada? Had a happy childhood. You know, I'm very grateful growing up in Canada because it was such a multicultural environment. I look at my friends even now that are like the school friends I grew up with where we'd walk to school and everyone came from diverse backgrounds. And that's how we learned about each other's cultures and food and uh, family values. But I, I give the example of growing up uh, having parents who were immigrants because I think it, it's reflective of my um, work ethic and discipline. And I've seen what it takes to come from literally two suitcases to building what we have Mm -hmm. now. And um, it was actually my first exposure into fashion was seeing these magazines Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, beautiful pieces and having this visual art, which was such a feast for the eyes and having a sister had great taste. So I would like raid her closet. Love it. That's the dream of a big sister, isn't it? Yeah. Um, So you grew up in Canada and then what about university? Where did you study? University, I went to uh, London College of Fashion, which is University of the Arts. Um, I graduated from fashion management, specialized in luxury goods marketing. And I was, it was a second year. So I was the second batch of graduates. So it was actually a really interesting time at London College of Fashion because they just introduced this program. You know, I went for the interview. They were like, there's only 50 students in the class and it's broken up in 25, 25. So it's class A, class B. So you're really, really only with that 20 group of 25 students. And I think I was just very lucky because the program was new. The professors and the dean of the program were so interested to have feedback um, with the classes. So we were learning economics, but our case studies were on Estee Lauder and Marks and Spencer, for example. But we're still learning. Fascinating. Like, yeah, I mean, but we're still learning. Do economics. Yeah. yeah, but we were still learning like the, the principles of um, everything from computer science to uh, ec- like, yeah, economics was a big class because it's really understanding the 
economy and the scale and how these businesses worked from like a luxury goods business to um, something a little bit more mass like yeah, Marks yeah. and Spencer. Fascinating. So you left London College of Fashion and where did you end up next? So when I was at London College of Fashion, I actually got accepted to FIT in New York before I went to London, which and, is which is a Fashion Institute of Technology in New York. And they had a very similar program of fashion management. And when I got accepted to University of Arts for London College of Fashion, I think growing up in Canada, New York was like a hop, skip and a jump, right? It was like an hour flight. You go all the time. And I just always thought I would end up in New York City. Like, I love that city. Like, my heart, like, I just, I land in New York and I just fall in love with that city. So when I got accepted to the UK, I was like, let me just go to the UK. I'm going to be there for three years and I will move to New York and follow my fashion dreams. I landed in London and I made a very conscious decision because I literally a heart and soul thought I was only going to be there for three years. So I made a very conscious decision that I would intern and learn and do as much as I can. Now I was at a time in the UK where the pound and the dollar were three to one. So whatever my parents were giving me to like, you know, pay for my accommodation and tuition and, and just a little bit of spending, it wasn't enough money. And I didn't have the heart to tell my parents because my mom was working like crazy to, to just, give me this incredible opportunity. And my dad was working like crazy to give me this incredible opportunity to study in the UK. And I didn't have the heart to tell them that things are really expensive. And it's not like the England that my dad was growing up in, you know, so many years ago, everything was expensive. So I started doing these part-time jobs and these part-time jobs included, um, in the course of the three years, I worked at Prada on Sloan street for a few months. I, you know, for like half a year, I worked at Burberry as a showroom assistant and then a showroom model, you know, literally serving coffees to the wholesale buyers. And I, started doing as many internships or part-time jobs. Uh, one of my favorite jobs was um, Harry Blaine's assistant at Blaine's Fine Art, which was on Bruton Street. It was Harry's first art gallery. And I was the receptionist on Saturdays. And that was my exposure into the art world. Like every Saturday, he would teach me about art. And so being at school during that time was this incredible exposure. And I think there was a very pivotal moment in my second year where I attended a talk by Tom Ford and I, we talked about this. It was at the costume society and I was literally the youngest person in the room. I begged for this ticket, made a donation to the costume society, literally begged for a ticket for them. And I ended up sitting next to the PR director for um, Gucci. And at the end, when the lights turned on and Tom and Colin McDowell were speaking on stage, this wonderful woman named Kat, looked at me and she goes, who are you? You're the youngest person in this room. And <laughs> I said, who are you here? And I said, you know, I like have written essays on Gucci group and, you know, Mr. Ford and, and Domenico de Sole. And like, I just wanted to hear him speak and, you know, I'll do anything to work for him. And she goes, you know what? You're really young, but send me your resume in the morning and let's see if we can get you like a work experience. I came home, wrote this resume and emailed her. She invited me for an interview the next day at 3 p.m. I went to the office in Mayfair. What year are we in? This was, oh God, like 2000, I think. Like, yeah, second year university. And um, I was working as a, as like a PR intern. And my life just changed because I was exposed to this incredible world, learning how PR and marketing worked, how a showroom worked. Um, and at that time, it just tells you how old I am, but like, it was all about faxing. So you'd fax the oh reviews to Mr. Ford and, uh, you know, wake up at 5 a.m., get all the newspapers, cut them perfectly and then scan them after the shows. And and, and and can I just ask, I mean, he was amazing then. I mean, yeah, now, and look, he's still amazing. Wow, we were talking yeah. the other day about the incredible, incredible new collection um, via creative director Peter Hawkins. And, yes. you know, God, Tom, Tom Ford needs 
needs no sort of approval from me, but he's incredible. What was he like then? What did you learn from him? So I, so he was looking for a second assistant and then, you know, I would be the one, cause I was the intern running to the office to drop things off. And fast forward, he offered me a job. I was in my second year university. I asked my parents, they said, no, my, my parents said, we worked very hard. You're going to get that certificate. Like, you know, you're going to graduate university. And if he still wants to, you can work. And fast forward, I handed in my dissertation um, on a Thursday and I was working with Mr. Ford on Monday morning and my life changed. And I learned, it was literally his his office, Whitney Bromberg, who is um, Peter Hawking's wife, actually. Yeah. And um, she was his PA. I was a second assistant in one kind of glass room. And the and the floor across was Peter Hawking's, who was assistant menswear designer with John Ray and Frida Janini was there, Alessandro Facinetti, wow, like all wow. these incredible, um, you know, Alessandro McHale was working as a handbag designer with Frida Janini. Like it was such an incredible time. Yeah. And I always say the power of Tom Ford because all of us, I truly believed, learned so much. Like I learned more from him working with him in those years than I did in university. What, what did you learn? I learned people management, brand management. I learned how to look at an item and see if it's commercial, editorial, how to make it work for the consumer. Um, his power of makeup and hair and how he's so involved in the styling. He, I always remember when I was younger reading re, reading an article with him talking about how women should apply their makeup. It's always stuck with me. <laughs> he's just brilliant, right? And he sells this look. And I think the other factor, which I really learned from him now as a boss, because he obviously during that time, he became vice president of Gucci Group and mm -hmm. he had all these brands under him from Stella McCartney to Boucheron. To, he was creative director of Saint Laurent is that he was so decisive. And I think as a boss, that is such a great skill is to take in information from everyone. So he would discuss with everyone in a design team. And at the end, he made the final call. And I mm -hmm. think as a boss, you have to be responsible and take that final call, mm -hmm. you know, and to give direction and leadership. And that's truly what I learned from him. So it was such an incredible time. And, and so, yeah, when we talk about, you know, Whitney becoming, you know, starting this, you know, flower box and she's so successful and Peter becoming the creative director of Tom Ford, it makes me so proud you know, I was just like, God, I, what have all the other people that work for him gone on to do? I but mean, they have, wow. right? can I come and do an internship? Tom yeah. Ford? But I look do. at everyone. Christopher Bailey used to work for him. Yeah, in the design true, team. True. She, he became the creative director of Burberry. Alessandra Facinetti was at Gucci. She did women's wear after mm, him. Frida so Janini was yeah. like from bags to creative director. Yeah, yeah. John Ray went to, I think, Dunhill. Um, Stefano Pilati was obviously at Saint Laurent. And then now he just, Stefano just is launching his capsule collection with Fendi right now. So if you just look at all the people that has- Have learned from him. Learned from Tom or mm. been in Tom's world. Or also Tom, just to recognize talent. I think that's the other, you know, to be a leader and recognize talent to build your team. Yeah. That's incredible as And well. then for them to go on and just to go achieve on and, all yeah. of that. It's just, yeah, it's incredible when you actually stop- and think about I mean, it. Claire Wright Keller was knitwear designer at Gucci. Her and I used to travel together like every week. Was she? She was, you know, went to Pringle. Then she went to Givenchy. You know, she did Meghan Markle's dress. Like, yeah. I mean, she's so talented. She's an incredible mom. I just remember her like literally like just on a flight about juggling her kids and, you know, working. And it's just these power women that you're surrounded mm. by. And so, yeah, mm. I, I get very proud to be around colleagues that have excelled and, mm -hmm. and have done really well. Um, so you were second assistant to Tom. And what happened after that? So after that, there was the takeover of Caring Group. And um, all of us, 
kind of all went in different directions. He took some time off and I was really young, so I couldn't take time off. I had to work and I had these incredible opportunities of, you know, people that had offered me jobs and, um, I didn't know where I wanted to go. I didn't know if I wanted to go to, I went to New York for, for a few interviews. I went everywhere. I just was trying to explore what I wanted to do. And then Gucci offered me to move to Italy with the design team for the women's wear. And I remember calling Mr. Ford and I was like, what should I do? And he goes, Roseman, just, I lived in Milan, experience Milan while you're young, like just <laughs> take the leap. And, um, and so literally it was between Milan and New York. And I, and I think these are those pivotal moments where your life can go in any direction. And so sometimes I'm like, oh, I just wish I did New York. I wish I took the leap and went to New York, but I took the leap and went to Milan. And so I, I lived in Milan for a year with the Gucci design team. And, and was, was it mad year. living there? It was, you know, there was so much change happening in the company. And so you really were just working 24 seven because there was so much pressure to deliver this incredible collection. Um, also, you know, I was trying to learn Italian. Like it was a lot, like it was, everything was just new. And so I think I was just so used to the safety of London and, and knowing my crew. And what was your role? So my role was I'm assistant to the creative director of women's wear. Right. So I was really involved in all the meetings and seeing that whole design process. And, but it was a lot of pressure for the creative director at that time to, to deliver. I mean, as you can imagine, yeah, to be right after Tom Ford. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so you were there for a year. I went for a year and then there was another change of leadership and then the offices were getting moved to Florence. And so before I renewed my contract, I got this offer from a headhunter for, for Juicy Couture, which had just been bought out by Liz Claiborne. And it was at that time in the early 2000s valued at like a billion dollars on the New York Stock Exchange. And I just remember thinking, okay, I love Gucci so much. and But the thing is, I have such a weakness, right? Like every time I'd get my paycheck, I'd be shopping and like the store the next day, like I just had such a weakness. So um, I got this crazy job offer from Juicy Couture and I thought, you know what, maybe I should just be a little bit more business focused. I had this great opportunity. It was three of us that had, were, there was the GM, myself, and um, an office manager from LA, from the Juicy team from LA who came to London. And we literally had, carte blanche they were like set up the first office outside of new york and la you know in in europe but you're going to handle the european market and uh middle east and kind of emerging markets really like across europe and i was like okay what's my job and they're like we just want you to like just rebrand juicy because it's really known as a tracksuit brand we're opening several categories and we just want you to like add your magic touch. And this and was I, sort of juicy 2.0, wasn't it? Yeah, it was this it new way. that huge. Yeah, it was all about the tracksuit before. Yeah. And so they're like, we just need you to look at this collection and, you know, what can you do? And it was such a, and again, and I give the example of Juicy Couture again, because working with Tom Ford was like working for an entrepreneur, right? He's the one making the decisions. He's the one setting the tone. Fast forward, I moved to Juicy Couture. It's three of us setting up this company, you know, outside of, of the U.S. So we chose the showroom because we wanted to elevate the brand. So we chose Mayfair. We had a beautiful showroom, um, again, because I had a trained eye from working with Tom Ford, a collection of like 800 pieces of this kind of prestige mass brand. I was able to cut it down and edit it and curate it into a collection that we could present to Vogue and a Tatler and an L and a Glamour and a Mary Claire. And so I started realizing that was kind of the skill set that I developed. And on top of all of that, I had this great database of celebrities working at Gucci. 
So I started just gifting and seeding. And this was, you know, now we call it influencer marketing. At that time, it was like seeding these celebrities. And all of a sudden, it's the same thing, right? It's the same thing, right? And it was like, like now it was like before we were doing that 20 years ago. And so without Instagram, yeah, without Instagram. And so all of a sudden, everyone was wearing juicy, like Gwyneth Paltrow wore it to like a Hamptons polo match or like a lunch wearing the striped I feel like dress. I need to dig into the archives and find all these yeah. pictures. You were there were so many. There was Kate Moss was on the cover of Daily Mail. She was in Vogue wearing a juicy trench coat. Didn't you have Rania of Jordan yeah, wearing? Yeah, Queen Rania yeah, in, her, I mean, in her hall of... Like, in Juicy. In Juicy Couture, in her hall of fame article. This is why she's called the godmother of luxury. <laughs> In her, yeah, when Queen Rania was featured as in the Hall of Fame of Vanity Fair, they wrote an article on her and she was responding to all these questions. And they said, What's your favorite piece of clothing? And she could have said anything, like any big designer. And she goes, Juicy Couture, long sleeve shirt, covers the <laughs> hips. And I literally fell. And I think when that article came out, like every headhunter called me again, going, Work your magic, you know, for our brands. But I think because I just had this like sense of what looks good on people, what's practical and and people just trusted my style as well. And so it was from Princess Beatrice to, you know, Ewan McGregor. Like everyone was just wearing this Gwen brand. Patrick, Jude Jordan, Law. I mean. Like everyone was just kind of wearing the brand. But it was also not about seeding them like a hundred pieces. It was just giving them kind of just these key looks, letting them style the way they want. And Amazing. Um, yeah. Amazing. And meanwhile, you've got married. I got, yeah, I was married then. Yes. You got married and you moved to Dubai I moved to Dubai yeah uh, because you had a place here How so did that come about? my I, I got married in 06 07 and um young bride I was a young bride and you know I think to be honest now in hindsight I think a lot of it was just it was like this grand proposal it was this all my friends were getting married at that age I, I just thought that's what you do ended up being just a disaster and I couldn't get out of it and whatever but like it was definitely a lesson learned and after Juicy, I'd taken this position for Dior, which didn't even really happen because I got married and it was for the PR office in the UK and I got married. And next thing I know, like my in-laws and my husband at the time were like, we're moving to Dubai. And I was like, sorry, what? And I knew that when I was dating him, my in-laws would travel to Dubai and they would come for the winter and then they would travel to India or Asia and, and kind of really use here as a base. And I was traveling to Dubai because... I had friends here. I would come here for like the weekends. Um, my ex would do train polo training in the winters. So I-, I was familiar with Dubai and literally I got married and they were like, no, the in-laws are going to live with you. And you know, this is the house we're getting. And everything just happened overnight. My life changed. And it was a very difficult conversation to have. Cause I was like, you married someone who is working and building this career. And I just didn't understand what was happening. And, and, uh, you know, I was in a marriage where I was just unhappy, unfortunately. And I really tried to make the best of it because I was committed. And I was like, I made this decision. I'm going to try and make this work. But, you know, life has other plans. And when I came to Dubai, the first three weeks, it was just really funny because we were building this house. I was staying in a hotel. And within these three weeks, all these people, like my ex-colleagues started calling me and they're like, Rosman, you're in Dubai. Would you mind doing me a favor? And that's really how my company started because this favor was essentially mystery shopping. Yeah, well, so tell us, tell, you were telling me yeah. um, last time we met about going into 
Jimmy Choo, I think yeah, it like was. Yeah, I would go into like so they called you up and they were like, Rosamund, can you go in and can just, you just go check in out what's t- happening in the store? Can you go in and check out what's happening in the store? And as you can imagine, back then, it was a, such a different business format. So it was a very franchise-operated format. So they were like, Rosamund, can you go into this store? Can you go into this? Like different ex-colleagues of mine were with different brands. They're like, can you just, you know, see what the experience is like? Because, you know, at the end of the day, a luxury consumer should get a very level of service um, around the globe. And so I just started giving them feedback. I was like, you know, I think the buy should be a little bit of this. And this is the future of, because I started understanding the region and just looking at the region, you could see the construction. I mean, we're very lucky now. I mean, this whole road is built, but if you can imagine 20, 25 years ago when I started traveling, it was it wasn't yeah, built. There yeah. wasn't. I mean, I've seen, I've seen YouTube videos. Exactly. There's one that's Dubai 50 years ago, and it goes through the through. years. It's, I, I recommend people. the transformation. Yeah. And so, what I started realizing were all these ex colleagues of mine who'd never come to the Middle East, and they'd only get their reports. And so, I started messaging them, going, "You know, this not just the city, but this country is changing at such a rapid rate." Women are working. There's a financial center being built as we speak. There's malls being built. You, the styles that need to come here are women with classic court shoes that can wear them to the office, lower heels, not so much bling. Like they, they you know, women are starting to work. Um, the bags need to be practical, like day bags, tote bags. Like it should be a reflection of kind of the buy in other major cities. And so I started to kind of forecast for them indirectly. And not that I was charging them. They were just my friends that I was literally just emailing. And I, I'd be like, no, you know, this, you know, when they're selling the bag, I think you should do more training. And it's really about investing in in the brands here. And I would just give them my opinion. And then fast forward, I get a call from Tiffany's in New York from the VP of marketing. And I remember taking the phone call in my living room and they were like, hi, we heard you have a luxury goods consultancy firm. And what had happened in that? In those <laughs> yes, kind I of, do. <laughs> yes, exactly. And then what had happened, those three weeks ended up being three months. And what had happened is my name had just got passed around as someone who really understood the market, someone who understood luxury, someone who was bringing the best practice of Europe and bringing it to the Middle East. And that's what I realized my niche was, is that with all my experience of working with these incredible designers and executives and working with these brands, you know, whether it was a Burberry or a Gucci or even a Juicy Couture is that I was bringing all the best practice to this region. And I started seeing niches in the market where I could give my skill set. And, you know, there was there was areas to have a PR showroom. And so when the call from Tiffany's came, they were like, we're opening right front and center in the biggest mall in the world. It's called Dubai Mall. And our store is right at the main entrance. We're going to be the first major opening. You know, we want you to, you know, train the staff. We want you to do the PR. The Yellow Diamond's coming. The gemologist is coming. The CEO's coming. Plan the whole week for execution. And that's really how RR and Co. started. And I remember him asking me, he goes, what's the name of your company? And I literally just said RR and Co., which was like my first name and then my middle last name. And I was like bespoke luxury management. And I remember putting the phone down and I called the lawyer. I was like, can you just register the company? And that was it. And I put a team together and that was the start of being my first kind of entrepreneur experience. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. This message comes from BOF sponsor eBay. You'll know real when you get it. 
it'll say eBay Authenticity Guarantee. And you'll feel it. Maybe it's a head-turning handbag, a watch that says it all, jewellery that makes you look like the gem, or sneakers and streetwear so fresh every step feels fly. eBay gets it. So look for the blue check mark next to that thing you love and be confident that every inch, stitch, sole and logo is checked by experts. With eBay Authenticity Guarantee, you can trust that feeling of real is always in reach. Ensure your next purchase is the real deal. Visit ebay.com for terms. You, you call yourself an accidental entrepreneur, don't you? I call myself an accidental entrepreneur because the company had just mushroomed and in, in a good way. And all the press was picking up on it because also we were doing PR in such a different way. You know, we hosted the first breakfast at Tiffany's. We hosted the first charity jazz night. We did a dinner with the CEO and the American ambassador. And it wasn't about doing a dinner with 500 people or, you know, a thousand people in a ballroom. It was literally like 20 couples. And it was about choosing and selecting consumers that either were loyal to the brand. So as a thank you, you get to have dinner with the CEO or people who are potential um, consumers of high-end jewelry. And so we started curating these dinners and, you know, breakfast at Tiffany's with like the right group of women. It was 30 women. And what year are we in here? So we're in 07, 08, 09. In this like three-year span, everything had just changed. Um, So all the malls were opening up. So within three years, this business had just, I moved in 07 here, by 08, this company had like started. And then by 09, one brand after the other had just started coming on to R and Co. And I call my I call myself an accidental entrepreneur because back then I was like, I didn't think I was gonna have a business. I thought I was gonna be in this very secure corporate job, just climbing the ladder. And I would always call myself an accidental entrepreneur because this business, I was learning as it started, like as it went on, I yeah. would be learning how to put a team together. And, you know, I reflect back to this time in 2020 when I spoke at Parliament, because then I realized that I wasn't an accidental entrepreneur. Everyone around me, starting from my parents, were entrepreneurs. Then, you know, my uncles, like everyone around me, I was always surrounded by entrepreneurs. And that's the environment I was in. And having this pivotal moment of working with Tom Ford, he was an entrepreneur, right? He was like, as much as it was a corporate structure, he was dictating you know, how the corporate atmosphere is, the corporate environment. He was making the decisions. Working at Juicy Couture, you know, I had a GM that I reported to, but essentially I reported to Pam and Gila, who again are entrepreneurs, they're, they're creative directors of Juicy Couture. The CEO at the time was Angela Ahrens, who is, you know, who then went on to Apple and Burberry. And so I was always around these dynamics. You've been surrounded by some phenomenal people. Phenomenal people. And I think when you have mentors like that, that you're surrounded by, you know, I just wanted to be a sponge and learn. So I would love being in a corporate meeting, even just to be sitting there just listening and learning. Taking it all in, yeah. Taking it all in because that's how you learn. And so now, you know, fast forward, I realized, okay, I'm probably not an accidental entrepreneur. I was always surrounded by that. So it's no surprise that like, you know, I like multitasking. I like having a few projects on the go. Um, I have this kind of creative bug in me or this business bug where I can always kind of... um, I get excited to work on something new and and I love the fact that you're you know you have this incredible fashion background but and you've said yourself but you're business focused and, and you know you might not be the best person at a spreadsheet but you you have a commercial right, business yes. mind yes. right yes um and that's really cool I think in the fashion space to, yeah. to sort of recognize that 
yeah, there are brilliant, brilliant business leaders and entrepreneurs. It might be fashion, but they're not mutually exclusive. Yeah. And I think the other, and I think the key to success is, um, and I remember doing this is when the company started and R and co just opened overnight, you know, I, and I had to put a team together. I did a SWOT analysis of myself and I always tell everyone to do this because you have to be very honest. And I, I always think you should do it on your own, like not with people around. Like I, I don't like doing these. Don't let anyone else see it. Yeah. Like it's just because it's for you, right? It's yeah. for you to really understand what your strengths are, what your weaknesses are, what the opportunities are. So I started recognizing when I moved here, what the opportunities in the market were. So to have, a, there was no showroom here. There was no PR sampling. I understood how the sampling system worked in Europe and the US. So I recognized that because the Middle East had such a short lead time that we could actually take those samples, which wouldn't cost money to the brands, bring them here and brands could actually shoot it. And I started recognizing those opportunities. I started understanding my strengths of what best practice I can bring with my experience and what I was learning in Europe and bringing it to the region. My weaknesses, not a strong writer. Um, I didn't have a financial acumen. So I didn't have, I wasn't strong in IT, for example. So when I started realizing what my weaknesses are, and I was very honest with myself, that's how I started building my team. Because mm-hmm. I was like, what is the core vision of the company? What do I want to put out there as a CEO or a founder of a company? But to get that vision out there, I need a really strong yeah. team who believes in RR and Co, who believes in my vision, who wants to grow the company with me. And that's how I started building the team for RR and Co. I love it. I, I mean, I love a source analysis, but you know, doing it on an individual is is really smart. Can you just talk a little bit about how RR and Co evolved? I mean, you said showrooms, samples. So we were advised. So it ended up being um, a PR showroom, which is what we were really known for, and then it evolved into doing very niche events. So as time went on, I had a really good proprietary database. So we were doing all the niche events for brands, whether it was the opening of Prada and Miu Miu to, um, you know, Alice Temperley. Tom, when Tom came, we did the opening. We've done uh, Christian Louboutin. We've done his entire like launch PR, his celebrating right to his 20th anniversary. Shoe signings were literally like I, I wish I had photos of it, but lineups, you know, around the corner, people just standing there with shoes waiting for him to sign Amazing. the bottom of the shoes. Amazing. So we've had such incredible experiences across the Middle East, whether it's been in Saudi or Lebanon or UAE. And our co ended up being a PR showroom. We ended up being an advisory. So when brands were coming in, we would introduce them to the local franchise partners or distribution channels. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And we would do niche events. So that was kind of our core. And we would do product seating. So really kind of seeding products to these high net worth individuals and that would we thought would appreciate the product and would like to try it. So we weren't ever working with influencers or media. It was more on working with clientele. Um, and, and then the PR side was separate. And today, R&Co. So R&Co today is we don't do PR and, and we don't have a PR showroom. We close that part because all the luxury brands have now they fast have. forward. The business structures changed here. So they all have their own offices here. They don't need to do uh, a franchise model. So they've all opened their offices from. Yeah, sh- so you were talking about having a regional sponsor. You know, that's yeah, not a requirement. That's anymore. not a requirement anymore. So and I think that's something that sort of UK listeners might not know. And I think um, that's relatively new, isn't it? Yeah, to the region? And it's but until very recently, you had to have. A local, a local partner for a big you. business. And now, you know, this country is so amazing where they support female entrepreneurs, they support businesses. So, and that's something you're, you're not the first person to. I mean, I've now met a lot of women, a lot of entrepreneurs. I think in Saudi, even 50% of entrepreneurs in Saudi Arabia are women. Amazing. Which is just an amazing stat. Yeah. And, um, 
Yeah, Listen, I, I've I met so many incredible female entrepreneurs. I believe you can't believe the it. power of uh, you know having financial independence for a woman, even whether it's a small amount or a big amount, whatever it is, to know that you can earn is an incredible power. Mm-hmm. And that's why education is so important. That's why you know working on a talent or a skill set or finding your passion is so important. Um, and I really advocate that. So sorry, you were saying R and Co. So it's it's no longer in the showroom. It's not the showroom space. We still do niche events for right. brands. Um, so a lot of times, whether it's designers or executives come, we might plan like a, a curated event for them, whether it's a lunch or a presentation. Also for me, like my, you know, I've been here since 07 and my career has changed. I was very lucky that um, Dubai TV, you know, spotted me at a very yeah I mean you've also had I mean you've really done it all you've also had you know on the side of running your very successful business you were also an editor at large for Harper's Bazaar Arabia yeah and hosting your own tv segment yeah so I so like within the first year of coming here I ended up getting a show on Dubai One it was a live show every Thursday they gave me a segment and they gave me like I think 10, 12 minutes of airtime talking about beauty, fashion, um, any red carpet events. It, it was my first kind of entry into television and I just loved it. And I think that got, gave me the bug. Uh, two years into being here, Harper's Bazaar opened. So then I got a call from New York. RR Co. had just taken off. And, you know, my dream was to work at a magazine. So I ended up just being a contributing editor with them. But I was with them for 13 years. And we've done incredible projects together from World of Fashion to the Best Dressed Issues and um, other commercial projects. So it's just, you know, to be, I, I think I was the longest running contributing editor there for 13 years. And I, I left during COVID. And it was just a nice time to be at a magazine that has so much history. I mean, it's yeah. been around for over 150 yeah, years. it's a great magazine. And to watch it support women in the region and give them a platform was just, it's such an, it was an incredible journey and an incredible experience to, to be a part of that magazine. And so, yeah, I feel like, I feel like what's been great about this country, it's allowed me to adapt and experience so many different fields that I've had interest in. Yeah. And it's allowed me to kind of go in this media sector. So I think that's kind of where I am now. And now, God, you, I mean, you're involved in a lot of events. You do a lot of speaking. You have your own podcast. Yeah. I mean, yeah, you're, you're a very talented broadcaster. Can you can you just talk a bit about, you, you said that this country has allowed you to evolve as it has. I mean, can you can you talk a little bit about the evolution of the UAE? I describe. Because you've been here a long time. Yes. And you must have just, it must feel unrecognizable almost. But in the best way. Can I tell you, this country is so incredible. So I truly believe the UAE is the best of East meets West. It holds um, the sensibility of family values, exceptional service, and anything that you're possibly missing, whether it's your favorite restaurant or hotel, everything is here. It's here. Yeah. <laughs> it's here. But I also love that it's service driven. Like that's what excites me about this region. Mm. And it's constantly evolving. The and it's le- so open and welcoming, isn't it's it? It's open. It's welcoming. You sit in a restaurant, you hear so many different languages. It's so multicultural. Um, it's all about tolerance. You know, it, there is a minister for tolerance. There's a minister for happiness. Is there, is there really? There is. Yeah. There's I a minister that. for arts and culture. I mean, where else in the world in 45 minutes you have exposure to you know, that drive from Dubai to Abu Dhabi, you see the most beautiful mosque. They give you a tour. Um, it's so, I mean, it's just stunning and peaceful. And five minutes away, you have the Louvre, the Guggenheim's opening. The best beaches in the world are here. 
you can have any possible cuisine you want, you know, and I love that in a 30 minute drive, as much as the city's expanding, that you can go into old Dubai and, and go into the Abras and have this authentic experience. And so I just feel like Dubai is a great example of a country with tolerance and safety. Mm. And, you know, I've been here like post my, I remember when I got divorced, you know, everyone's like, are you sure you want to be there alone? Are you sure you don't want to go back to London? You know, to be here alone, I never think twice. I get in my car, I feel safe. I get home, I feel safe. Mm. Um, I just feel very blessed to be here and to have my own business and to be able to create my own income and have that independence and to start my own business and have these companies that help you, you know, build a business and set it up. I mean, I can't think of anything better. Well, it's palpable. I can feel yeah. it. I'm here and I'm No, like, and I'm you know, super passionate. It's, because no, I, it's amazing. It's yeah, amazing. Really and I get it. About, and, and I felt that welcome from, you know, the trips I've had here. It's, yeah. And I will say that, you know, as much as I work in the luxury sector, so I might talk about hotels and fashion brands and the malls, but I, I look at my friends who have families and they're doing the most dynamic experiences, whether it's cycling tracks or, um, you know, SeaWorld just open, like anything you can possibly think of for children is here, you know, from experiences. You could be practicing skiing in the summer and know, when the winter mad. season comes it's in Europe. It's slightly mad, yeah, but you know, why like, not? Anything's why possible Anything's possible. And I just feel like yeah. how amazing is that? So, um, yeah, I can think we, it's can very we blessed. Touch, can we touch a little bit on, um, I mean, you've recently got married. I did get married, yeah. You. Um, you've recently got married, but you talked to me before about being single in your 30s. And I thought it was such an interesting conversation. And I remember you said sort of, you felt this like, you were married in your 20s, you were single in your 30s, and there was this like pressure to meet someone again, but you wanted to meet the right person and that it it was quite difficult to know where you fit in being single in your 30s. I mean, you're now married to a very kind man. You've So happy. You know, I'm so, so I'm happy just, I waited. I'd love so to hear happy. your experience on that because... Yeah, I think, it's, well, I think it's an interesting conversation. You know, when I got divorced, it was a very hard decision to make. I feel very, you know, in hindsight, I look back going, how amazing that I had built this business because that actually gave me the confidence to be able to walk out and say, I'll figure it out and I can mm-hmm. pay my own rent and I can put a roof over my head. And that's why you think as well, financial independence. Financial is independence so is so important. And yeah. so until I, you know, when I knew that, it was falling apart and there was, you couldn't even put a bandage on it anymore. And I knew I had to leave. The minute I knew I had enough to pay rent, I had the courage to walk out. Cause I was like, I'll figure it out. And I already had the company. I already had clients. And so it was a matter of just taking that leap and, and really being independent, but being in your thirties and single and, you know, you feel pressure to settle down. You feel pressure to have, you know, this, all your friends are having kids, you know, they're on their second child or like, you feel like you're missing out and you're trying to meet people and people are trying to introduce you and whatever it is, it's this, maybe it's just for women, this pressure of like settling down. And thank God I was really lucky. I was able to throw myself into work. I also felt very grateful that I had a really like great group of girlfriends around that always made me feel included and, um, I had, a, you know, I just realized that when you go through these kind of hardships in life, when, when the failures, everything kind of goes up and down, you really know who your friends are mm. and who's around you. And so I was really lucky at that point to have a really great group of friends. 
And being in Dubai, I'm very lucky, again, that I feel very blessed that I have friends from different nationalities as well. So I had a great group of friends. I had this business that was evolving and I just focused on that. And there's this pressure in your 30s and then you're in your 40s and you're not settled. And at the end, I just ended up meeting this amazing man. And what I realized is that for me and what I, I think I speak on my husband's behalf as well is that we came together based on values and what we wanted our life to be because both of us have already had this journey. And knowing who you are. Knowing who we are, what we like, what we're willing to compromise on. You know, what is that that barrier of compromise um, and how we want to grow our life together. And I think there's something quite interesting as well because him and I joke about this because he's like, oh my God, it was so hard to date you or, you know, or to get your attention because he goes, yes, he had to be quite persistent. He had to be, he? He had to be really persistent. <laughs> and, you know, he's like, he goes, you know, when I was dating, like, I'd buy a girl a glass of champagne or take her to a nice restaurant. And I was like, well, I don't drink and I can afford my own meal. <laughs> like, so, or I'd, or I'd been to that restaurant. It wasn't like he was impressing me. What was impressing me was that he was thoughtful, that he was kind. He would remember a conversation that we had and reference back or, or started understanding what I liked. And, um, you know, the way he was with my family. I mean, my parents are in their eighties, so they're a lot older and, you know, it, you have to have patience to be with, elders and how he got along with my my brother and my nephew and my sister and my brother-in-law and these people are the core and how he was with my best friends and so he's like I think you put me through a test because every time he would come I would do a dinner with my my friends and their husbands and I was like I said listen these people are like the core of my life because my my family live in the U.S. and Canada and so we're only going to see them a few times a year these are my friends that I see yeah. you've got every, to get them to like you <laughs> yeah because they're like they're they're my family in mm-hmm. Dubai and and so he started getting along with all their husbands and my friends started to fall in love with him. And they're like, Rosman, he's great. And I think that was just really nice because I think you want people who are in your core Mm -hmm. um, and you want to build a life with them as well as the future goes on. But I think getting married in your forties is really about family values and how you want to grow together Mm -hmm. and communicating. I think Mm -hmm. that's really important. Well, congratulations. Thank you. Can we just talk a little bit about starting a business and advice that you would give to others? Uh, yeah, what would you say to women who might have a business idea, might have started something, but it's early days, you know, as somebody who has been very successful, who's run her own business for a long time, what would your advice to those? So my best advice to any entrepreneur or anyone starting out, whether it's in social media or whether it's, you know, a small business is one, know who you are as a brand. So I, I mean, I think a lot of people here just know me as Roseman. And so even my media deck that I shared with you is just the Roseman, you know, and it's very much clear about who I am. So what my experience is, but also what are the charities that I'm passionate about? These are the charities that not only I sit on boards for, but they're the ones I want to advocate for. I'm very clear about who I am, what my brand values are. And when I'm doing brand collaborations, uh, you know, I tell brands how I dress, you know, I, I dress more on the modest side. So I don't kind of wear backless or super cleavage or whatever it is. I'm very specific about who I am, what I stand for. And I don't know if that comes with age maybe, but it comes with experience. And so I'm, I'm very clear about who I am, what I want to do. Um, and so it's really hard because sometimes when you really do need the money and you get these brand collaborations and it's hard to say no, but I'm like, I, it's not authentic for me to yeah. partner with that brand. So being authentic. Being is- authentic is so important. And what I realize is that sometimes I'd be like, oh my God, I really need that. Like that project would really help. But 
I just know it's not authentic to me. It's not right. something that I would stand for. It's not a product that I would use, for example, um, or I'd keep in my own home. But when I would say no to that, it's really funny because when you close one door, something always mm. opens, mm. right? Like it's just, that's just the way the world so is. So really investing in your own brand, being true yeah, to you. Knowing who you are. Yeah. yeah. Being authentic to who you are, being very present is really important. What do you mean by that? When you're here, like right now I'm with you, I'm with you. I'm sitting across the table. My mind's not wandering. Mm. I'm so excited to be here. You know, I was excited that we met each other in London. <laughs> um, and so it's really about being present. I think in, in a time where all of us, our minds are racing and we're constantly strolling, the attention span is so quick, right? Mm. So it's really about being present. And for me, I do that by having a very organized schedule. So my calendar on my phone or my assistant, when she prints it out on the day in the mornings and puts it on my desk, it's a very defined schedule. Like it says where my meetings are, travel time, whether it's getting ready time, like everything is very defined. I like at the end of the day, knowing when I go to sleep that I've used my time wisely. And it's not about being overpacked with work. It might just even be relaxing at home in the evening because that's my downtime. But at least I know I am enjoying my home. I'm enjoying sitting mm, with friends, mm. having dinner at home. Like, yeah, it's good advice. So I, I just think that it's, everyone has the same 24 hours. You have 24 hours, I have 24 hours. Like that's just the way the world is. You don't get an hour more, I don't get an hour more, right? But it's like, how are you spending your time? So for you, it's probably with the kids and business and traveling here and probably have jet lag and you're exhausted, right? But it's like, how are you using your time, right? Mm -hmm. And so for me, I, I want to go to sleep knowing that I had a great day or I felt I you felt spent your day well. I spent my day well. And so I would say that's my advice. I would say really doing a SWOT analysis. That's a game changer. Mm -hmm. I like that a lot. Um, and constantly learning. Like I, I like doing, I like listening to podcasts. I like if I can do a course or if there's like a lecture or a guest speaker in town, I'm always kind of very happy yeah. to go to a conference yeah. and sit and listen. Um, so important. And, and do you feel at, you know, 40 something, early 40s? Yeah. Do you feel as driven as ever? I feel that there's clarity. You feel like I, you know where you're going and where your focus is? I feel like I know where I'm going. I know what I want my life to be like. I know the priorities. I, I feel very blessed. I have incredible friends around me. Um, I have an incredible family and I just, I feel very grateful that these are the people that I want in my life and I want to grow with. I'm excited to start new businesses. I'm excited to, um, explore just the next stage of life. And, and that is, you know, married and having family and all of that stuff to come, you know, inshallah, but I'm excited for this new chapter. And I think that's, that's kind of what's getting me up in the morning. Well, I wish you so well in your Thank next you. chapter. We'll all be watching and following. And Thank you so much. You really are one in a million. Thank you. Thank, Thank you, you for so having much me. for joining me. I've loved chatting to you. Thank you. That's it for today. If you enjoyed that, then do please rate, review, subscribe, tell your friends to listen to, and we'll be back soon. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners are odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. 
so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1, only from Rust-Oleum.